Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Monday, August 22nd, 2022. It's been 3,098 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 180 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission to report the truth, because the truth matters. As always, let's start with some assessment of the current status of the war. First, the British Ministry of Intelligence and the ISW assessed that Russian forces had exhausted their combat strength, validating our conclusion from August 19th. Second, Russian officials have likely kicked out Ukrainian employees of Energoatom from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant to eliminate evidence of its use as a military base in preparation for the agreed-to International Atomic Energy Agency inspection. Third, there is a very high chance of multiple and significant punitive strikes against Ukrainian civilians and civilian infrastructure the week of August 22nd due to attacks on Belgorod and Russian-occupied Crimea, the assassination of Daria Dugina, and Ukrainian Independence Day celebrations on August 24th. Fourth, the Kremlin will likely be forced to push back the planned September 11th referendum due to the security situation in the occupied territories and a lack of progress on capturing new territory. And finally, we maintain the battlefront is frozen across Ukraine, and time is running out for both belligerents to launch brigade or army-sized offensives. Let's take a look at our regional updates, starting in the Donbass region with the slovensk belohorivka berestova Triangle. The Russian objective here is to maintain territorial control and ground lines of communication, or GLOCs, control insurgency, and integrate captured territory into Russia. The Ukrainian objective is to prevent advances on Siversk, Slovyansk, and Kramatorsk, support insurgents, exploit weaknesses, and interdict supplies. Along the Luhansk-Donetsk administrative border, it was as calm as it could possibly be for a war zone. At the time of recording, Russian forces were attempting to advance on Vesele in Donetsk from Spirne. An ammunition depot in Alchevsk was destroyed in a rocket attack launched by HIMARS. Social media videos showed a large fire with multiple secondary explosions. One of the videos featured a colorful editorial from a man reporting on the scene. It is not suitable for work. Listen with headphones if you're around people who speak Russian. 
Our assessment here is the same as it was on August 18th. You can find it in last Thursday's episode around minute two. To the south in Bakhmut, the Russian objective is to capture the Bakhmut Solidar complex and collapse the Svitlodarsk salient before August 31st and interdict the Bakhmut Siversk T5013 highway G lock. The Ukrainian objective is to defend Bakhmut Solidar while managing equipment and personnel losses, minimize civilian casualties, and defend G locks. Russian forces have likely exhausted their combat power east of Bakhmut and in the Svetlodarsk bulge. The settlements of Yakovlivka and Vesela Dolina were shelled, but Russian forces didn't attempt to advance on either settlement. PMC Wagner Group and elements of the 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, attempted to advance beyond the Naufgyps sheetrock factory on the eastern outskirts of Solidar. They also tried to advance into Bakhmutska without success. Pro-Russian sources claim the 6th Cossack Tank Regiment is, quote, deep in Bakhmutska, after claiming the same unit was, quote, deep in Solidar on August 20th. Quick assessment here. Main battle tanks aren't effective in urban warfare without significant light infantry support. In our assessment, it is doubtful that armored vehicles are leading a successful advance into either settlement. Private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, supported by the LNR separatists, remains on the outskirts of Bakhmut. The 58th Mechanized Brigade of Ukraine shot down a Russian Su-25 ground-attack aircraft. Russian forces continued their attacks on Zaitseve, 10 kilometers southeast of Bakhmut, striking from two directions. Ukrainian defensive positions withstood the assault. In the Svetlodarsk bulge, Russian forces attacked Kodema from three directions, but failed to dislodge Ukrainian defenders. A new offensive was launched from Hladoseve in the northwest direction, which was also unsuccessful. Our assessment for the Bakhmut region is unchanged from August 9th. We recapped it on last Tuesday's episode around minutes 7 or 8. In southwest Donetsk and western Zaporizhia, the Russian objective is to capture the Donetsk Oblast to its administrative borders before August 31st, push Ukrainian forces out of firing range of Donetsk City, and defend the existing line of conflict in Zaporizhia to the Dnipro River. The Ukrainian objective is to defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentrations in command and control sites, interdict supplies and disrupt logistics, and prepare for, or convince Russian forces they are preparing for, a wide-scale counteroffensive. An attempt at advance on New York by Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR separatists, ended in failure. North of Avdiivka, DNR separatists fought positional battles near Krasnohorivka, but could not improve their tactical situation. West of Donetsk, elements of the 1st Army Corps of the DNR attempted to advance on Optin and Piski using reconnaissance in force without success. Ramzan Kadyrov claimed that Piski had been captured on August 21st. This adds to a long list of claims from the Russian Ministry of Defense and DNR officials, which began on August 5th. Despite the new claim, Russian forces shelled Ukrainian positions in the northern part of Piski on the same day. Our assessment? We maintain Piski is a no-man's land, 
with Ukrainian forces still in the northern part, along the E-50 Ring Road and north toward Vesele. The first attack on Piski was recorded exactly a month ago on July 22nd. Separatist troops made another attempt to advance on Pervomaiske across the open country to the south, but lacked armor support. The village of Nevelske was attacked from two directions, but a lack of tanks made moving across the open fields near impossible for light infantry forces. DNR separatists tried to improve their positions in eastern Marinka using reconnaissance and force. The understaffed unit was ineffective. The Russian Air Force also conducted airstrikes on Ukrainian positions. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR tried to flank Marinka from the south, launching an offensive from Luhansk in the direction of Pobida. Consistent results were achieved, with the advance ending in failure. In Donetsk, rockets fired from HIMARS made a precision strike on a large ammunition depot in the eastern part of the city. Videos recorded by residents caught the distinct sound of a HIMARS strike. The ammunition depot was in a residential neighborhood adjacent to a hospital and an Auchan grocery store supercenter. Hours after the strike, ammunition was still cooking off at the burning complex. An amazing drone video was released, showing explosions still happening in the morning. We link to it in our full situation report, which is available on Patreon. On the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border, Russian forces tried to advance on the Velika Novosilka suburb of Neskuchne and were unsuccessful. There continued to be reduced artillery fire west of Velika Novosilka. Quick trigger warning. Insurgents in Melitopol discovered a Russian soldier sexually assaulting an underage girl. The soldier was surrounded and attacked by a mob, who then allegedly slit his throat. Our overall assessment of the region is unchanged from August 17th. You'll find it in last Wednesday's episode around minute 7. Let's move on to the Kharkiv region. The Russian objective in northwestern Kharkiv is to prevent Ukraine from reaching the international border with Russia, protect the Belgorod-Kupyansk GLOC, and break civilian will with continued terror attacks. The Ukrainian objective is to prevent further Russian advances on Kharkiv and pressure the Russian-controlled Shevchenkov Izum GLOC. Local news organizations reported that Russian forces launched offensives on Dementivka and Pitomnik. Russian forces launched S-300 anti-aircraft missiles in a ground-to-ground capacity on Kharkiv, hitting the Kiev district. A two-story building was destroyed, but there wasn't any other information on damage or casualties. Shifting to assessment for a minute, Russia is starting to use S-300 missiles as quasi-short-range ballistic missiles, or SRBM, almost theater-wide. After six months of the war, Supplies of Iskander MSRBMs have likely been exhausted beyond their strategic reserve for national defense. Some S-300 missiles were upgraded in 2016 with GPS to support ground-to-ground attacks versus ground-to-air. However, the fragmentation warhead on an anti-aircraft missile is ineffective against reinforced military targets, and despite the upgrade, the missiles have an accuracy of plus or minus 50 meters. Russia moved Tachka-U launchers into the Donbass in July, 
which is another sign that the supply of modern SRBMs is running out. There wasn't any other ground fighting northwest, north, northeast, or southeast of Kharkiv. Instead, Russian and Ukrainian forces traded artillery, rocket, and tank fire. Our assessment here is unchanged from August 12th. We recapped it on Friday's episode around minute 9. On the Izum axis, the Russian objective is to push Ukrainian forces back to end shelling on Izum and protect Gloks west and north of the city. The Ukrainian objective is to defend against advances on Slovyansk and capitalize on weaknesses in Russian defenses, continue to harass and interdict Russian Gloks, and execute special operation forces raids on Russian troops located behind the line of conflict. Russian forces are attempting to push Ukrainian artillery positions further south to end the shelling of Izum. The general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine reported that Russian troops are having supply issues on the Izum axis. The amount of artillery fire was significantly reduced. Russian forces broke tradition and did not shell any settlements in the Shepil area, with the Russian Air Force launching an attack on Husarivka. Russian ground forces attempted numerous advances southwest, south, and southeast of Izum. They did not benefit from an artillery advantage, and the advances were made by understaffed and undertrained units that did not employ combined arms tactics, which is likely why none of the advances were successful. Russian forces attempted to advance on Dmitrivka and Bohorodichne using reconnaissance in force. Russian units attacked Ukrainian positions in Dibrovne, Dolina, and Karnakhivka. They also tried to advance in the direction of Novodimitrivka from Brazhivka. Ukrainian artillery continues to dominate the Sherwood Forest region west of Izum, shredding Russian forward operating bases, fire bases, and armored vehicles trying to hide in the forest. Our assessment of the Izum axis is the same as it was on August 8th. We remain unwilling to call the ongoing action by Ukrainian forces a counteroffensive. We maintain that Russian forces between Avdrivka and Kopanki are now in a salient and at moderate risk of encirclement if Ukrainian forces were to make a breakthrough. It is implausible that Russian forces can secure the Donetsk Oblast by August 31st without securing Slovyansk as part of that self-declared deadline. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to the Dnipro, Kherson, Mykolaiv, and Zaporizhia regions. In Kherson, the Russian objective is to push Ukrainian forces out of artillery range of Kherson and critical GLOCs, prepare for a Ukrainian counteroffensive by building defenses, and prevent the expansion of the insurgency. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate the Kherson Oblast west of the Dnipro River and push Russian forces back far enough to end multiple launch rocket system, or MLRS, attacks on Mykolaiv and Kriviri. 24 hours after Russian state media broke Operational Security, or OPSEC, in Novokakhovka, showing that the bridge at Kohovka Dam was possibly still serviceable, a video showed 12 rockets from HIMARS slamming into the bridge. No assessment. 
Russian airborne troops, or VDV, continued their attempts to advance on Tavrieska from Oleksandrivka, supported by the Russian Air Force and artillery. They could not improve their positions over the open terrain and were attacked by the Ukrainian Air Force. Russian forces continued attempts to capture Blachodatne in Mykolaiv Oblast and remained unsuccessful. Ukrainian forces launched offensives on Novorednieve and Sukistavok, intending to expand the Inulets River bridgehead. Fighting was described as intense, however, Ukrainian troops did not capture either settlement. In Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia, the Russian objective is to interdict personnel and equipment assembling for a counteroffensive, break civilian will with continued terror attacks, and turn popular opinion against Ukraine by terrorizing the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The Ukrainian objective is to prepare for and stage a counterattack, prevent further Russian advances, and exploit weaknesses on the line of conflict. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is unchanged. None of the parties involved in negotiations to allow inspectors into the power plant have set a date for when the International Atomic Energy Agency will arrive. Valentin Reznichenko, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, reported that Nikopol was hit by grad rockets fired from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant region. Over 40 rockets landed in the city, damaging 50 private homes, a kindergarten, the city court, stores, and a bus stop. There were no reported injuries. Looking now to the Cherniev and Sumy region, the Russian objective is to lock Ukrainian military resources in place and break civilian will with continued terror attacks. The Ukrainian objective is to maintain enough force strength on the border to prevent Russian troops from crossing. Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that the settlements of Bilopilia, Khotin, and Velikopisarivka were shelled from across the international border with Russia. There were no injuries, and none of the strikes caused major damage. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, Russia fired five-caliber cruise missiles into the Odessa Oblast. Two were shot down, with three landing in the area of Mayorske. Ukraine claims there was no significant damage, and three warehouses holding grain were damaged or destroyed. The Russian Ministry of Defense claims they destroyed an ammunition depot filled with M30, M31 HIMARS rockets. Neither belligerent provided evidence to support their claims, and we can't validate the veracity of either report. The Black Sea Fleet has positioned five ships capable of firing caliber cruise missiles within range of the Ukrainian coast. There are significant concerns that Russia will launch punitive attacks before, on, or after Ukrainian Independence Day, which is August 24th. A quick editor's note. There are so many reports of explosions in Russian-occupied Crimea that are unfounded or likely air defenses shooting at nothing that we've decided not to report on each incident. It overwhelmed the team, and the volume of fake reports and manipulated images is astonishing. Russian air defenses fired at unidentified objects across the Crimean Peninsula, but there were no confirmed drone or missile strikes and Russian sources did not provide any resources to support claims of rockets, missiles, or drones shot down. Let's talk about what's going on theater-wide and outside Ukraine. 
Russia's National Republican Army, or NRA, claimed responsibility for the assassination of Darina Dugina on August 21st. The group claims that they planted an improvised explosive device, or IED, under the driver's seat of her father's SUV. Ilya Ponomaryev announced the Russian-based anti-Putin organization was behind the attack. Ponomaryev was a member of the Russian state Duma and in 2014 voted against the annexation of Crimea. In 2016, he fled Russia and reportedly lives in Odessa. On August 21st, shortly after the explosion that killed Dugina, the NRA, not to be confused with the United States National Rifle Association, released a statement calling for revolt in Russia. Russian state media quickly blamed Ukraine for the attack, despite the NRA claiming responsibility and releasing a manifesto. Margarita Simonian, the leading propagandist of the Russian Federation, declared, quote, Kiev would quake and called for the destruction of, quote, decision-making centers, which the Kremlin has so far avoided. The Russian Ministry of Defense has partially closed the airspace in Lipetsk, Voronezh, and Belgorod oblasts from August 22nd to August 25th, raising fears of punitive missile strikes or other attacks coming in the week ahead. Assessment here. To the west, Russia has set up over a dozen anti-aircraft sites capable of firing ground-to-ground missiles in Belarus, putting Kiev and Cherniv in range. Between the destruction of the ammunition depot in Belgorod, attacks in Russian-occupied Crimea, Ukrainian Independence Day on August 24th, and the assassination of Dukina, we believe that Russia will strike multiple civilian and civilian infrastructure targets across Ukraine in the coming week. Alexander Nakonechny, the head of Ukraine's security service in the Kirivorad Oblast, died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound on August 21st. This is an important sidebar here. Suicide is a sensitive topic. If you are having suicidal thoughts or you're despondent, there is help available. If you're in the United States, 988 or 800-273-8255, or you can text 741741. Veterans can text 838255. In Canada, 833-456-4566, or text 45645. United Kingdom, 0800-689-5652, or 999. Ireland, Free phone 116-123 in Ireland and Northern Ireland, or text 50808 in Ireland only. In Australia, 13-11-14, or 000, or text 0477-13-11-14. If you're in New Zealand, 058-828-865, or 111. You'll also find these numbers in the description. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Russian forces fired smirch rockets armed with cluster munitions into civilian areas of Zelenodolsk in the Dnipropetrovsk Oblast. One woman was killed and six people were injured, including a child. All six were hospitalized in serious or critical condition. The use of cluster munitions is not considered a war crime. However, 
intentionally targeting civilians with cluster munitions is. Residents in Russian-occupied territories are becoming increasingly frustrated with life under occupation. Pro-Russian accounts report that Lyman, Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, Rubizhne, and other captured cities and towns still have no electricity, water, sewer, natural gas, internet, television service, or garbage collection. Lyman, a resort town of 20,000 surrounded by national parks, was captured by Russia in May, and according to the residents under occupation, nothing has been done to improve living conditions. Local occupation forces require bribes, food costs have skyrocketed, and shipments are in short supply. Pensioners are not getting paid and have to disavow their Ukrainian citizenship before they are even considered for pension payments from the Russian Federation. One person wrote, quote, In general, Lyman's problems are quite typical for the liberated cities. Sometime after the departure of the army, many residents are left alone with the devastation and lack of everything, as happens in Severodonetsk with Lysychansk. Once again, we repeat, winter is coming. Without an operational and comprehensive approach to the restoration of the Donbass, the liberated territories can become a depopulated region with many problems, and this is clearly not the future for which the fighters on the front line fought. End quote. The Donetsk People's Republic plans to put on show trials in Mariupol on August 24th to try members of the Azov Battalion with terrorism and other charges, despite a Red Cross-arranged surrender in May. Russia plans to hold its version of the Nuremberg trials and is repairing and converting a concert hall for the spectacle. Allegedly, defendants will be held in metal cages on a stage. There are concerns that summary executions will be carried out immediately after the trial. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky condemned the coming trial and called it a red line, saying, quote, No matter what the occupiers are thinking, no matter what they are planning, the reaction of our state will be absolutely clear. If this despicable show trial takes place, if our people are made to take part in this spectacle in violation of all agreements, all international rules, if there is abuse, this will be the line beyond which any negotiations are impossible. Russia will cut itself off from the negotiations. There will be no more conversations. Our state has said everything. End quote. There are reports that Russia will delay the referendum planned for September 11th in Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson due to the security situation and lack of progress in securing new territory. The self-declared leader of the Donetsk People's Republic, Denis Pushlin, said on August 15th that there wouldn't be a referendum until all of the areas of the Donbass had been captured. In geopolitical news, the Center for Political Innovation, a United States group aligned with the National Bolshevik Party created by Edward Limonov and Alexander Dugin, announced it was dissolving on the same day Darina Dugina was assassinated. A statement on its website gave no reason for the sudden closure. The organization held a conference in Chicago on August 6th, displaying the Chinese flag, the letter Z, and the flag of the self-declared Donetsk People's Republic. Dugin split with the party in 1998 over disagreements with other leaders. His departure caused the group to lurch further left, and the organization now condemns Dugin as a fascist, 
The organization's crest and flag co-opted Nazi designs and imagery and were designed by Dugan. The defunct Center for Political Innovation's use of Russian icons, which some consider fascist, opposed their platform and alignment with Nazbol ideology. And in economic news, it's been 20 days since the first ship loaded with grain left a Ukrainian port. Since the program started, 27 vessels loaded with grain, meal, and sunflower oil have departed, and another 18 have arrived to be loaded. Dairy farmers in occupied Luhansk are paid one-seventh of what they received from Ukraine for milk by occupation officials. Farmers say they would dump the milk under better circumstances, as the money doesn't cover operating expenses, care for dairy cows, or even basic survival. Forced with no other work options or potential forced conscription, they are selling their milk to the occupiers. The ruble opened unchanged on Monday, with the exchange rate at around 60 for one U.S. dollar in early trading. Oil declined when trading opened this morning, with WTI crude opening at around $90 a barrel and Brent crude at around $96 a barrel. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline also opened lower, trading around $2.99 a gallon. Chicago SRW wheat futures is around $0.77 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.